This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Moranalytics Podcast. Today is Thursday, June 28th, 2018. I am Patrick Moran. On today's show... I'll be joined by Rochester Democrat and Chronicle veteran Buffalo Bills reporter Sal Mariana. Don't know if you guys knew this, but Sal is now the longest-running Bills day-to-day beat reporter in the entire history of the franchise. To me, that's really, really cool. Although I'd also imagine some of those years, particularly the last 17 of them before this past season, probably kind of sucked. Yeah, but to each their own. Sal's been through it all, the good times and the bad. Today, we'll talk about him being born in Buffalo and attending Buff State College. We talk about his road, landing his gig. A gig, by the way, that literally in his first four years on the job, saw him covering the Buffalo Bills going to four straight Super Bowls. I talked to him about the teams during that time, the current Bills, his thoughts on many sports media topics, golf, social media, some of the books he's written, and a lot more. I love doing these long-form interviews when I get the chance. Love, love, love them. I'll tell you what. I know Sal gets this rap as the bitter Twitter, as he's called on Twitter. And, you know, being accused often of uh, being a grumpy writer and a grumpy dude, but... Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. I've had a lot of Buffalo-based media guys on this show. Sal Capaccio, Tim Graham, Jay Skursky, Tyler Dunn, Mike Harrington, Howard Simon, Matt Fairborn, Mike Rodak. Those are the guys I can remember anyway. And I've enjoyed my conversation with Sal as much as any of them. In this case, critics and haters, you're wrong. You are. I'll go sit at a bar with Sal, have some whiskey, some fireball, whatever, and hear some of his Bill stories any day of the week. Had a lot of fun talking to him. Can't wait to get to that interview. Real quick before I get to my conversation with Sal, are any of you guys as obsessive when it comes to binge-watching TV shows on Netflix as I am? I taped my interview with Sal late Tuesday night, and I had to drag myself And I'm not exaggerating. I had to drag myself away from the TV to do it. I spent 12 straight hours before that interview binge watching The Office. I started binging it just a few days ago. And I'm like already a handful of episodes into season four. 
It's like, I can't stop. I'm an addict. I'm crazy for it. And here's the funny part. Well, maybe it's not funny. I've already seen The Office. This is my second go round with that show, which, by the way, is only my favorite TV show ever. Have any of you guys binge watch a show on Netflix or somewhere else where all of their life kind of ceases to exist for several days or even a week or so, maybe longer? If so, I want to hear your stories. Hit up the podcast voicemail line and I'll play a few on the air next week or something like that. The number is 941-281-5960. Again, that's 941-281-5960. I'll put that number in the show notes as well. Call and tell me about which show you're a complete and utter junkie for. I want to hear a couple of your stories. All right. I don't want to get too far off point from today's podcast. This is an interview I've been looking forward to doing for a long time. As a longtime Buffalo Bills fan and someone who has a great deal of respect for the media, what they do, I'm excited about this one. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Sal Mariano. Okay, my guest today has covered the Buffalo Bills for the Democrat and Chronicle since 1990 and is now the longest tenured day-to-day beat reporter in the team's history. He's also authored 20 books, including those chronicling the history of the Bills He's also semi-affectionately known on social media as the Bitter Twitter. I'm talking, of course, about Sal Mariana. How you doing, Sal? Thanks for joining the podcast. Good, Pat. How you doing? I'm doing real good. Now, everyone knows you work in Rochester, but you're actually from Buffalo. Where in Buffalo did you grow up, and what were some of the things that you liked getting into as a kid? Yeah, actually, I was born in Buffalo. Uh, we lived over on the north side. Um, over in the Hurdle area, actually, for until I was four years old. But then my dad, uh, who actually worked for Carnation Company, uh, moved. He got transferred to Syracuse. So I actually was born in Buffalo. All of our family, immediate family, and all that roots are all Buffalo. But I actually grew up in Syracuse from kindergarten through 12th grade. Uh, grew up in the city and then lived in a small town called Marcellus and went to Bishop Ludden High School. So any of your Syracuse listeners will know all about that. And then I went back to Buffalo to go to school at Buff State, and my dad and family got transferred back to Buffalo when I was a sophomore, and everyone's back in Buffalo again. So yeah, it was weird that I was, everything is from Buffalo, and we are all in Buffalo now, but I actually grew up my entire uh, elementary, middle school, and high school days in uh, in Syracuse. Hmm. Were a couple of your favorite athletes as kids growing up? Um. I don't know that I had particularly favorite athletes. I was a big fan of obviously growing up in Syracuse, everything Syracuse University. My dad's company had season tickets and rather than take his clients, he usually took me. So we went to a lot of games at old Archibald stadium uh, before the carrier dome was even built. And then SU basketball before the dome, of course, they played Manly Fieldhouse. So we would go to some of those games. So Syracuse was a big deal for me growing up still is. I still enjoy following all the Syracuse sports, lacrosse, uh, as well as basketball and football. And then, of course, the Bills and Sabres were my teams growing up as a kid. Even though we lived in uh, Syracuse, I was still a big Bills and uh, Sabres fan. Believe it or not, my my favorite athlete, I guess, growing up, I had I had three. They were all Buffalo guys. Nobody that I would like, you know, 
like today wear a jersey around, but Gilbert Perrault, Bob McAdoo, and O.J. Simpson, they were the the triumvirate in Buffalo in the mid to early, early to mid seventies. Um, if you followed any of the three teams, obviously those were the three biggest guys. So those are the players that I, I guess I love the most, but I was never much of a hero worshiper. Even as a, as a young kid, I just wasn't, um, I enjoyed teams. I rooted for the teams and that was, those were the teams that I rooted for. You mentioned Buff State college. You go to college there at Buff State. Why did you go there? And were there other schools that you considered going to? Yeah, I I was accepted at Syracuse. Um, ended up not going there, just because it was you know even then it was a little bit more expensive. So I ended up going to Buff State because they had a really good journalism program. Still do, to this day. I mean, for a state school in New York, it's got a fine journalism program. A number of my colleagues went there. Mark Gone from the Buffalo News, uh, Bob DeCesare, uh, formerly of the Buffalo News, Bucky Cleason, formerly of the News. My my comrade here in Rochester, Leo Roth, we all went to Buff State and graduated from the journalism program. So it was just a really good, like I said, journalism school. Plus, it was very convenient. Um, I lived with my grandparents my freshman year before my parents moved back. And it was literally three blocks away from Buff State so I could walk to school every wow. day. So it was convenient, but it was also a really good journalism program. When did you first get really interested in journalism? Maybe to the point where you decided that this is something you may want to do with your life. I, I tell my son this all the time. He has been a lover of music uh, since he was a little kid. He would be in all the plays and he was in the school band and the chorus. And he always knew that he wanted to be a music teacher. And he graduated just last month from SUNY Potsdam, the Crane School, as a music teacher. And he's got a job already in Poughkeepsie lined up. I always told him, you're exactly like I am because when I was in sixth grade, I knew I wanted to be a sports writer, wow. which is pretty rare yeah. <laughs> for a kid who's in sixth grade. But I just, I discovered the newspaper at a very young age and, you know, came to realize that all of the sports were there every single day in the newspaper and you could follow along. I was a big baseball fan, still am. And you could follow the standings and the box scores every day. And then I would read the stories and I got to thinking like, you know, this is really kind of fun. So I would actually watch games on TV, Pat, and I would have my little stupid typewriter there and I'd write my own little, you know, three paragraph <laughs> story. I mean, I was a total nerd, right? I loved sports, played sports my whole, you know, growing up and everything else, but I also loved writing. So I kind of mixed the two things together and I had a really cool English teacher, to be quite honest, in sixth grade. And she sort of recognized that I kind of had a, a flair for writing and she really helped me out and she pushed me along. And it just went from there. I ended up working for the school paper in high school and then decided that that was what I wanted to do for a living. So I went to Buff State to pursue a degree in journalism. So I was one of the lucky ones, um, knew right away what I wanted to do with my life and have gone ahead. I've done it for now for 30 some years. Yeah. Most middle kids school, you know, age kids, they want to play center field for the Yankees, not write about the center fielder for the Yankees. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I certainly, yeah, I certainly wanted to play for the Yankees. There's no doubt. And I was actually a pretty good ball player when I was younger, but yeah, I just enjoyed writing about the games too. And uh, when, it, when it became pretty clear that I wasn't going to be a major leaguer, this was the best thing to get closest to the games, I guess. Did you have any internships when you were in college with any, you know, local papers or anything like that? Yeah, I, I had the best internship possible. Uh, I worked for the Associated Press for, for two and a half years oh, wow. in co while I was in college. I was very lucky. I had a great teacher at Buff State. He's actually deceased now, and he used to work for the Buffalo News 
before he became a professor at Buff State. And he just had a lot of ins with, you know, people in the journalism community through the news. And he knew the guy over at the AP and they were looking for someone to string uh, Sabres and Bills games. And he knew that, you know, my whole passion was to be a, I never wanted to be a news writer or a feature writer. It was sports writer or bust for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he knew that that was my interest and he thought I would, you know, be a pretty good fit for them. So, yeah, I, I used to, you know, John Warrow is the AP writer now. Well, predating him about three or four AP Buffalo guys, I would run the quotes from the locker room up to the writers because they're always on deadline for right. AP. And my job would be to be, I'd watch the games and then I'd go in the locker room into the Sabres locker room when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. And I'd be interviewing Gilbert Perro and, you know, all these guys and then run the quotes back up to the writer. And then eventually they would, you know, if the writer wasn't going to be there for a game, they'd let me, you know, write the story for the AP. So, you know, other kids in college are working for the, the weekly, you know, the Riverside News or mm-hmm. whatever the weekly paper is in Buffalo, the little community paper. I'm working for the AP. And it was, um, yeah, it was an awesome experience. Just that, that really, really helped me um, quickly, quickly out of college get a job because I had a great resume. As an 18-year-old kid, is it a little bit intimidating to be in a Sabres locker room interviewing Gilbert Perot? You know, a guy that you said were one of the people that, you know, you really admired growing up. Is that intimidating for you when you're that young or is it something you were just able to get used to right away? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I first went in there, I was, you know, certainly I was nervous. I wasn't sure, you know, I'm in there with veteran, you know, geez, back then it was Dick Johnston. I don't even know if you remember who Dick Johnston was. He covered the Sabres from from day one until probably at least 1990. Yeah, I remember. Um, all these, yeah, all these veteran guys were in there. Um, and here I am, just this kid in college. So I was a little bit intimidated, but I will say this. Those guys were all great. They were all great men. They really were. They, it's not like, I mean, I guess there, there's been a period in journalism. It's actually gotten better now, probably because I'm an old curmudgeon myself. But there was a time where it was really cutthroat when, when newspapers, you know, when the Buffalo News and the Courier Express were, we're going head to head or even here in Rochester, just wherever you were, there were so many more newspapers and the competition level was pretty fierce. But I will say that back then there was really a cool group of guys who seemed to all get along like our group does today covering the bills. And I was kind of welcomed in, even though I was a kid, like nobody really snubbed their nose at me or looked down at me. And that helped me when I went into the locker room, at least I had the respect, sort of the respect, I guess, from these older veteran guys, but yeah, there's, there's no doubt. I'll t- I tell kids today, you know, you're probably going to be nervous the first time you go into a professional locker room like that, but you got to remember, you're just having a conversation. You're just asking questions. That, that's all there is to it. And you can get over that pretty quickly. And I did, I, I don't think it was, you know, more than a, a few times in there before I started feeling comfortable and just did what I had to do. Did you work at the Democrat immediately after college or did you have other gigs before ultimately landing there? Yeah, I graduated in um, the spring of 84, and then I took it took about nine months before I got a job, and I actually started at the paper in Corning, uh, the Corning Leader. I went down there. They had actually a buddy of mine from Buffalo uh, had become sports editor, and he knew that I was looking for work, so he called me up and said, hey, come on down for an interview. Let's see what we can do. Went down there, got the job, and you know all they had in Corning really was high schools. They had an LPGA tournament, and they had Watkins Glen. So I spent, I guess it was 20 months in Corning and actually did what I thought was a pretty good job. And in the meantime, uh, there was no Sunday paper at the time at Corning. Mm -hmm. So I would always come back to Buffalo on the weekends. I was pretty much done 
on Friday night after the high school football or basketball games. And I usually had the weekends off. So I would just drive back to Buffalo. It was two hours. And that enabled me to keep my AP stringer gig for the Bills. I, I couldn't keep the Sabres, but I was able to come home. And then for home games, I would still be stringing for the AP. And that led very fortuitously to me getting the job at the Democrat and Chronicle. The guy that I actually ultimately replaced on the Bills beat, Scott Petoniak. Um, I remember Scott. He had said, yeah, you know, Scott. He had said, hey, you know, we're looking for a golf writer at the DNC. Our golf writer is going to go work for Golf World, the magazine. And he said, you know, why don't you, why don't you apply? So I did. And I went to Rochester. I actually started in Rochester the day after Thanksgiving in 86, but I went up there for the interview and I got the job. So I was originally hired as the golf writer in Rochester, because at the time golf was a huge deal. We covered golf. We had the LPGA tournament every year. We had a lot of local tournaments that were a big deal. And at that time, the U.S. Open for 1989 had just been granted to Oak Hill. So we were starting to already ramp up coverage of when that was going to come. So I went there as the golf writer. And I really was the golf writer for the next 20-some years. Uh, we've, <laughs> we've completely stopped covering golf now. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a decision the paper has made that now in this new metrics world, only a few things matter. High schools and the Bills primarily in Rochester. So anyways, I was the golf writer for a long time. My first beat Syracuse football in 89. And then in 1990, Scott decided he didn't want to travel anymore with the Bills. He wanted to become kind of a features enterprise type reporter for us. And I was the next guy in line for the Bills job. And there I was at 28 years old covering the Bills, a team that I had followed, you know, my whole life since I was seven years old. It was a great, great opportunity. My first four years, Pat, they went to the Super Bowl. I was so going to ask can, that. That was, was going to be my next I question. Can, I can seriously say, because I know it's true for one reason, obviously, no team has gone to four in a row. I am the only beat writer in the history of the NFL whose first four years his team went to the Super Bowl. <laughs> that I can say with confidence. That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, I know. You, get, it you, really start, was. you start covering a team and they be, instantly they were a Super Bowl team. Do you feel like in hindsight, now that you were a little bit spoiled, that so early in your career of covering, you know, the NFL for a newspaper on a beat that you're covering a team that's going to the Super Bowl like every year? Oh, are you kidding me? I think about it, especially during the 17 year playoffs. Yeah. There's been many times where I was like, man, we had no idea how good it was because it was just expected that they were going to go to the, not only the Super Bowl, but we knew they were going to the playoffs just about every year. So really, 1990 to 1999, they only missed twice, right? It was 94 and 97. Yeah. So my first 10 years, I only missed the playoffs twice with the Bills. Little did I know that after that, it would be 17 friggin' years <laughs> before I'd be covering a playoff game again. So yeah, I've kind of had the, the uh, I've had the complete 180 of covering a, covering a football team. Let's talk a little bit of sports media for a minute here. So you've been covering the Bills for a long time, and I'm sure over the course of many years, you've developed a lot of good relationships with a lot of the guys that you work with. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this specifically, but I'm sure one of them is Jerry Sullivan. What were your thoughts when you first heard or read that Sully was out at the Buffalo News? I imagine when shit like that happens that it hits you close to home and newspaper guys, things like that go down. Well, absolutely. We, I mean, we've been watching our industry crumble, crumble around us. And quite frankly, the, those of us who still have jobs feel pretty fortunate. I'm, I'm only 55. I mean, it feels old and 
everyone on Twitter thinks I'm an old, you know, grump, <laughs> but I am only 55 and I still got a ways to go before the finish line. Right. And really we're at the point now where we're just trying to make sure we can get there. And it's becoming harder and harder as newspapers just continue to crumble. So, you know, seeing a guy like Sully and Bucky, some of my best friends um, have that happen to them. It, it was hard to watch because, you know, we all thought, you know, I've been in this market for a long, long time. And the Buffalo News has been, you know, my competition, even though we all get along and we're friends. But, mm-hmm. you know, we're competitors. And they were forever the, the untouchable news source, right? They were, they were like a battleship. There was no way anything was going to bring them down because they just dominated in the area, you know. And then Warren Buffett's their, their owner, so the money was relentlessly endless. And to have this happen the way it happened it just shocked all of us here in, well, I'm sure around the country too, to those, those people who pay attention, but to us locally, it was like, holy smokes, what the hell just happened? Now I've come to find out, you know, obviously I've been in, in the know with all of this and Graham has said it. Um, everybody has said it who left. They all could have stayed. Nobody was laid off. Nobody was fired. They just decided that they were reprioritizing certain things that they're going to do. And, you know, they had grown tired of Sully and Bucky always taking the negative slant, which, you know, quite frankly, I sort of do too. You go 17 years without covering a playoff game, right. you're going to be a little grumpy occasionally. It's just, that, you know, I'm just telling it like it is. And that's what they did too. Um, but I guess the, the, the powers to be there just had gotten tired of it and they wanted a reboot. So they offered these guys buyouts. They took them. Um, but again, as, as people have said, they did not have to. They, uh, Bucky could have gone back to covering the Sabres, Sully could have been writing features until he retires. Um, Tim Graham, the same way. His job was unchanged. He could have stayed there, but he decided to, you know, to leave. He got aggravated, I think, with how it all went down. And sure. he lands with the athletic. Vogel, the same thing. So it, it was a seismic shift in Western New York media. There's, there's no question about it. But I also have faith that, you know, as much as those guys will be missed, and they will be missed, people will say they hate Bucky and Sully, they're going to come to miss them I agree. pretty soon here, I think. They're definitely going to miss their voices, but they're going to replace those people. And, you know, hopefully in time, the Buffalo News will, you know, even though they're competitive mind, they'll get back to doing what the Buffalo News does. I still say, Patrick, they're, they're one of the best sports staffs. They were one of the best sports staffs anywhere in the country, and they've still got some really talented people there that do a great job. So assuming they hire uh, good people to take it, to fill in those spots, they're going to be fine and they're going to be a powerhouse for, for many, many years to come. You touched on this and I'm glad you did. And I'm sure a lot of times you take it with a grain of salt as well. When you hear people complaining about it, but like with Bucky and Sully and to an extent yourself, when people are saying, well, they're always negative, they have a negative spin. I mean, yeah, when you don't make the playoffs for 17 years or like the Sabres, they've been dead last in the NHL three of the last five years. And this is after all the whole tanking thing and stuff. It's like, well, there's not a lot of good shit to write about. I mean, what are you supposed to say when the team annually loses every year? You know what I mean? Does that bother well, you? It, when- well, it it, uh, it does bother me that that people get so upset when we write negative things about these teams, and and you just spelled it out. I mean, there have been times where what else would I possibly have been able to say about these Bills games that I've covered? They 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 were so bad so often. They they made so many boneheaded personnel moves, coaching changes, GM changes. They, they've just yeah. been a franchise in complete disarray for almost two decades. So I, you know, I understand fans clearly. I understand fans. They want 
their teams to do well. They want their teams to be, you know, talked about in a good manner. But, you know, if the team is not coming through and providing that for the fans, I don't know why the fans constantly defend the ineptness of these two franchises. I really have never understood it. And we're just the messenger, man. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm just writing what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing and I'm talking to people and I'm just the conduit from the team to the fans. That's always been the job of the media is to connect the fans to the team. And Hey, I wrote a lot of good positive stuff this past year because things happened that were a positive in a positive frame of mind. You know, they got to the playoffs, took a miracle, but they got there. So that changed my, you know, my outlook on covering the bills this past year, but man, for a long time, what the hell are you supposed to write when they yeah. start a season 0 and 8 under Chan Gailey or whatever? You know what I mean? I, I hear you. I often ask, you know, my guests on here, a lot of sports media folk, the same question. Um, when you cover a team or a sport, like I mentioned, over time, you develop relationships with a lot of these guys, and I'm sure friendships as well with, you know, these competing newspapers and websites, TV stations, radio, whatever. You know, on one hand, these men and women become your friends. And on the other, you know, you kind of want to kick their ass when it comes to getting that scoop or writing the best story. Is it ever a little bit tricky sometimes to be able to balance that line between being friendly and being, you know, competitors? Because you're cool with these colleagues, but you're, you're trying to win that news day too. You know what I mean? You're right. Absolutely. Um, it, and it, it can be a competitive situation, but I, I will say this. Um, and it's funny. You're going to ask me a question later on and I'm going to give you an answer. Um, and I'll explain the answer at that time, but you know, the game is kind of rigged today. I mean, it's not like the old days where we were all competing to find that story, right. To break that news. Mm -hmm. It's a really tough game these days when everything basically comes through three news organizations and really three guys, right? I mean, it's all filtered through Schefter and Rappaport in the NFL um, you know, guys like Wojnarowski in, uh, in the NBA, mm -hmm. all these agents that tip off the guys who have the biggest, widest range audience, everything goes through them. I mean, it's so incredibly difficult to break news on the Bills beat right from Western New York because everything is going through the national channels today. And it never used to be like that. It was never like that. Right. All the local guys were the ones breaking the stories yep. and the national guys were just following along in our footsteps, the whole game has been flipped. And now it's almost a situation where, okay, so Adam Schefter puts a tweet out that the bills cut so-and-so. Okay, fine. So I write about it. I write five graphs, put it up in a blog on my, on my website. Who cares who had it? Who cares that Adam Schefter sent out a, you know, a, a 180 character tweet about this news? Who cares in the long run? I'm going to now provide you with some real interesting news or background or how it actually went down. He might've gotten the tip from the agent or the GM who knows where their bread's buttered, but I'm going to give you some insight now. That's how we kind of look at, that's how I look at the job at least today. Let Schefter break all the news he wants, but all he's going to do is send a tweet out. He's not going to write a story about it or give you any depth. I'll give you depth. You know, I'll tell you what, you're the first person I've had on this uh, podcast Who's laid that out? Because that's so true. And a lot of fans don't understand it. The big, one of the biggest bitches I hear from fans is, you know, local people don't break shit. It's always the same guys. Well, yeah, it is. And it's and like you said, it's because it's rigged. You know what I mean? Like the you said, the agents are breaking the news. You know, they're leaking the information to the one or two guys who, had, you know, Adam Schefter has. And I love Adam. He's been on the show. But he's got seven and a half million followers on Twitter. You know what I mean? So, of course, yeah. that's why agents are going out of their way to make sure that these are the guys that 
or getting the information. So I'm so glad you said that because that no one else who I've had on yet has ever talked about that. And it's and, such and, a good and point. Me, and let me say props to him too, because he is a tireless worker. Sure. The guy is a tireless worker. He's got every possible connection you could have in the world of the NFL right in his phone. And, and he's the, and they, they all know too, that if they get it to him first, it's going to go out to millions and millions of people. They don't give a rat's ass about the Democrat and Chronicle in Rochester. Believe me, I'm not calling Drew Rosenhaus, and he ain't going to call me back and say, hey, I got a scoop for you, Sal. It's <laughs> just not happening. I've been in the business 30 years. I may have all the cred I need, but Drew Rosenhaus is not calling me. He's going to call Adam Schefter or Ian Rappaport, NFL Network, ESPN. That's where it all comes from. Sure. If there is one can you think of what may have been like the hardest moment of your career, the hardest story to cover, just, you know, in general, the hardest part of your career? Um, well, I tell this story often. Um, it's the first Super Bowl. Now, let's face it. This is my first year on the beat. And as I told you, I'm Buffalo born and bred. Mm -hmm. Bill's fan since I was seven years old. I went to the rock pile. Made no mistake. I was squeezing for them to win that sure. game. You know, we used to go to the we used to go to Rich Stadium when I was a kid. We'd always be in Buffalo for my parents and all kinds of commitments and stuff. So we'd be there on weekends. I had a buddy of mine who I grew up with. His dad, his side gig was he was an usher at the Sabres games. Oh, the Braves games too. The Braves at the, at the odd and the stadium. Mm -hmm. So any of the events, right? We would get in for free. <laughs> we would go to Bill's games. We'd walk through his gate and we'd get in for free, find a seat. And we would watch games every home game that we could. I went to tons of Braves games, tons of Sabres games, all for free because of this guy's this guy's father. So nice. believe me, I wanted the Bills to win the first Super Bowl. When he missed that kick, I'm up in the press box, and I literally was frozen for 10 minutes <laughs> because I just was so overcome by, Jesus Christ, how could he miss that kick, right? I'm, I'm thinking like a fan at that point, and it was really a difficult coma to break out of after 10 minutes and say, okay, but you got to forget about it now. Now you've got to write this epic story because it wasn't just any game. I mean, with everything that was going on with the war and all that stuff that was, Whitney Houston had sung three hours earlier. And that was an epic story to write. And I was, like I said, for like 10 minutes, I was frozen solid because I just couldn't, I just couldn't be, you know, believe that they had come so close to winning the Super Bowl and they didn't get it. And I ended up cranking out the story and it was fine, but that was the most memorable event that I've ever covered. A, because it was the first Super Bowl. B, all the surroundings. And C, it was my team that was finally there for the first time. So I'll never forget that day as long as I live. Who's the hardest player during your time on the beat that you've ever had to cover? And I'm not saying necessarily the biggest jerk, you know, or the worst person that you've covered, but just the most difficult. The one who's always giving you the hardest time. Well... There, there were, you know, there were a few guys, but I've always said Bruce Smith was just, and Bruce has softened now. Obviously, he's retired and everything else, but I just always consider Bruce a phony. He was just, he was, he was always hard to, you know, always hard to deal with. You know, um, phony was the word. I mean, I hate to say that about a guy, Hall of Famer. He's probably, um, I still consider OJ the most talented football player the Bills have ever had. And you say what you want about OJ, but if you watched OJ play, he was just an unbelievable football player. Bruce Smith the second in Bill's history. I mean, Kelly was great. Mm -hmm. Thurman's great. Uh, Bruce Smith, for the position he played and the way he dominated it, he was the second greatest player in franchise history. But he was often a jerk. 
<laughs> Let's talk some current bills here. I know a lot of fans want to hear about that too. What has stood out to you most at Bill's OTA and mini camps? I mean, obviously there's only so much you could see in t-shirts and shorts, but still, is there one or two things that have kind of stood out to you? Um, you know, Patrick, here's another thing where I'm just old school on this as an airplane flies over my head here. <laughs> um, I just, I pay so little attention to OTAs in mini camps. I, I just find the whole exercise completely ridiculous. It, what I call it is exercise. Yeah. That's all it is. I mean, they can say it's practice and all this. You ask any football player when the season starts, they will tell you it's training camp. This is all exercise. And in this case, they're learning a new playbook with Brian Dable. So it was important that they at least, you know, get that time on the field for that. But, you know, my colleague, my younger colleagues who I like, I like, they're all great guys and they do a great job, but I, I just can't bring myself to be charting plays in yeah. an OTA practice. No Twitter you play know, by play. And no Twitter play by play. And this guy completed four out of eight for 25 yards. It's they're exercising, dude. <laughs> this, this is not, I mean, training camp, even training camp practice, these days, the old days, training camp practices were, they were watchable because a lot of stuff was going on. They were hitting, they were even tackling sometimes, but today training camp practices are so mellow, uh, but at least there is an urgency in training camp. Things are starting to happen now. Now you got to start cutting players. I just don't pay attention to OTA and mini camps. I write stories about people, about guys, but I don't write about, well, you know, LaShawn McCoy looked good on that run today. Come on, for crying out loud. Tell me when somebody's trying to tackle the guy. Then I'll then I'll write about him. So that's my opinion. That's my opinion on that. It's not the most popular opinion, but no, that, that's you. just years. That's just years and years and years of watching practices and wondering what the hell I'm doing standing there in May and June watching these guys in shorts. It just makes no sense to me. <laughs> now everyone knows that Josh Allen, to at least some extent, is a project. Here's my question. How patient do you expect the organization to be with him, especially if they get off to a bad start and get buried in the standings early? Like, say, if they start out one and four, two or five, how how quickly do you think he's going to be in the lineup? Or do you think this team, you know, do you think McDermott's going to stay very patient before this kid sees the field? I think they are going to stay patient. I, it's just McDermott's way. He, he's very, he's calculating. Um, he does have patience. And I think they've got a plan all set up for Josh Allen. And I would really be surprised if he, if he sees the field, unless there's an injury in the first half of the year, I, I just don't know that Josh Allen is ready to play in the NFL. There's a lot of things that go into it too. I mean, not only is it learning the playbook, learning your teammates, you know, learning how to read a defense in the NFL and all the things that are happening, just the, the mechanics of it. I mean, his mechanics, they needed work when he came out of college, he did some good work from Wyoming to the, to the combine with, he worked with Jordan Palmer out there, and he did clean up some of the stuff. I just don't think he's ready to play. They brought A.J. McCarron in for one reason and one reason only. They knew they were drafting a quarterback. They didn't know which one at the time, but they brought in McCarron to be their starter. Now, everyone's talking about Peterman. And here, This goes back to the whole you know, people charting plays and OTAs. Everyone said Peterman had a great OTA in minicamp. Come on. How, how do we know that Peterman had a great OTA? We don't know that at all. You know, and they said McCarron was terrible. No, I, I disagree with that completely. So McCarron, I think, is going to be the starter, again, unless something crazy happens in training camp. And I think Josh Allen, you're right. If they get off to a, you know, if they're at the midway point and they're two and six, say, then it would just make sense at that point, you put Josh Allen in. You get all the bad out, or as much of the bad out 
this year as you can. And then next year, it's the same thing as Jared Goff with the Rams. They put him in at the, what, the last five or six weeks of the of his rookie season. He, he was terrible, you know, predictably so. Mm-hmm. And then he came into the next year with all that under his belt, a second year in the system. He was ready to go, and he had a nice year last year. I think that's what the Bills ideally hope is going to happen with Josh Allen. I, I think that McDermott and Bean would shudder if they had to play Josh Allen right away this season. A lot of publications are picking the Bills to finish you know, really bad this year. Some even dead last in the entire NFL. I saw um, Sports Illustrated, the MMQB, picked them to be 2-14 and 14 dead last in the league. What's your take on that? Because I could see them taking a step back for sure because of the potential of, you know, mediocre quarterback play in the offensive line, you know, some key losses from last year. But dead last, do you see them finishing dead last in the NFL? No, it's utter ridiculousness. And that, there again, the national media is basically clueless when it comes to the Bills because, you know, deservedly so. The Bills have been irrelevant for a long time until last year. These national guys who come in rarely know anything about this team. And to think they're a 2-14 and team is just ridiculous. That's not going to happen. They've got, I think they're going to be better on defense. Now, last year, their numbers actually weren't great on defense. Their rankings were mostly all in the 20s. I think they're going to be better just by default with the guys they've added, you know, Tremaine Edwards is going to be, I think, an upgrade for sure over Preston Brown. They've got upgrades on the defensive line. They've got a pretty good secondary already in place. I think they're going to be pretty good on defense. And yeah, the offense, there's going to be a lot of problems, you know, not to mention the quarterback situation. We don't know how any of those guys are going to play. Their wide receiver core might be the worst group in the NFL. And the offensive line, although I think they've got some decent players, they're replacing three guys who were basically Pro Bowl level, you know, Cordy Glenn, Eric Wood, and Richie Incognito. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a tough fix for the Bills, especially, you know, early on. So I think the offense could be a train wreck for at least a, a good chunk of the, you know, at least the first half of the season. I'd be surprised. McCoy's going to get, <laughs> I hope they find a way to, to not kill him because he is the entire offense right now. Sure is. So they're going to struggle, and they're not making the playoffs. I'll say that right now. They Look, they got in on a miracle last year. We all know that. And, hey, they made it good for them. I was thrilled for them. But I see a step back this year, if for no other reason, Patrick, all the uncertainty at quarterback. That's the biggest position, and they really don't know what they have at this point. So, yeah, I can see a, I can see a six- or seven-win season, maybe at the best but two and 14 is just, that's completely off the charts. Do you got a guy in mind that you could see end up being a surprise cut at the end of the preseason? Not a shocker, but even someone who might be a mild surprise when a team gets down to their final 53. Um, I don't know if it's a surprise, but I think a lot of people have already talked about, it. I think Shaq Lawson, he's playing for his job this this summer. Um, there's a former first round pick who's only his third year. And they, they were not happy with him last year. I, I understand that injuries cut his first two seasons short, but you know, they were, they were not secretive about the fact, even the spring Bean even said, this is a big summer for him. He's got to prove that he could be a professional player. And I think that's a guy that everyone's going to look at to see, you know, where he's at come St. John Fisher. And, you know, once they leave there. So I think he could be a surprise cut. Um, outside of that, nobody really comes to mind. I would have said if Eric Wood was still on the team this year and healthy, I would have said he might be a surprise cut, but he's not there. So I can't <laughs> use that one. But I, I actually thought him last year. I, I People asked me that question last year, and I kind of thought him uh, because of his salary and, and all that stuff. One more Bill's question, then I want to move on to a couple other things before we wind down. 
you've been, you know, you've covered a lot of regimes here now. What's the biggest difference between covering the Sean McDermott regime as compared to the Rex Ryan one that you covered right before that? Well, Rex was definitely high in entertainment value. <laughs> we, you know, every press conference, we, we enjoyed Rex because you never quite knew what he was going to say. And for writers, that's great. So I, I really enjoyed Rex. You know, say what you want about him as a coach and, you know, what he did in Buffalo because clearly he took the Bills uh, he took he took the bills down a little bit. It, it was not what we expected. Um, I was actually kind of surprised they cut the cord so quickly with him. I thought they would give him the third year. I said it at the time. The bills have got to stop doing this. They got to stop firing coaches after two or three years. Let a guy in there and get his system in place for more than two years. Give him the third year at least. And I thought Rex could have gotten something out of that team last year if he was still there. They chose not to do it. Um, so they moved on. So Rex was fun to cover McDermott. I really like as a guy, I mean, he's probably, I like Chan Gailey a lot as a man. He was, a, he was a very nice man. Um, I felt he was pretty upfront with us, you know, didn't always tell us, you know, everything, but you ask him a direct question. You generally got a direct answer from Chan. You just mm-hmm. got to ask the right questions. McDermott, he doesn't say a whole lot. He's very measured in his words and that can be frustrating, but I'll tell you what, as a guy, as a man, I respect him a whole lot. I like him probably as much as I've liked any Bills coach that I've covered since Marv Levy. So I do, I wish him well because I do like, uh, I do like working with him. I like the structure and the culture that they've brought to Buffalo. I think he and Bean work great together and that's something the Bills have lacked for a long, you know, going back to, you know, the Marv Levy, Pullian Butler trioka, um, the Bills have lacked that continuity between coach and GM for a long time. And I think they've got it right now. I think they're moving in the right direction. So I do. I wish Sean well because if he wins, he's going to stay. And I think he has a chance to stay here for quite a while. How important is that word culture? You say culture. It's How important is it? I mean, you're in that locker room, so you know more than most. You've been in a lot of locker rooms through a lot of coaches. And people hear that word culture all the time. Some of them don't know what that means. So kind of explain a little bit how important it is to have that right culture in your locker room. Well, I just think that, you know, you've got to have all 50, well, whatever it is, 60 some guys, I guess it is ultimately pulling in the same direction. And and people think that's a bunch of BS, but really it isn't. The teams that are good in this league, they've got clear and direct focus. They always do. There's there's leadership at the top. Everything flows from there and everyone's rowing in the same direction. That's how the good teams are built. That's how they stay good. The bills have always been fractured. Throughout this whole playoff drought, there was always fractures in the clubhouse or in the, the club. Now I'm talking baseball in the <laughs> locker room and that hurt the bills. Now, again, when you get on the field, yes, players have to make plays. And unfortunately the bills have not had good enough players who made enough good plays to win enough games. So I understand all that, but it also does start in the locker room. You got to be on the same page together. Everyone has to be understanding what everybody else is doing. You know, the DBs have to know what the linemen are doing. The running backs have to know what the receivers are doing. If you're all in concert, I think it helps a lot. And then as far as culture, you know, as far as personality goes, you don't want bad eggs. You don't want me, me, me guys. And I don't think the bills have very many of those. I think they've weeded a lot of that out. And I think that's a good thing. You don't want anybody rising above and thinking they're the star of the show. I mean, McCoy, McCoy gets to that level a little bit because he is a star. He's going to be a future Hall of Famer. 
but he himself has assimilated, I think, pretty well into the culture of that room, and he's kind of become a leader. I think three years ago when he came in, I don't think anybody thought he would become a leader for that team, right. a, because he didn't want to be there, obviously. Right. But you know, I just didn't think he had that in him, and I think he's kind of become a little bit of a Pied Piper now, especially with uh, Richie and Eric gone. I mean, he's kind of the leader of that offense now, so that's what you need. That's what we're talking about when we talk about culture. At what point in your life, as we switch directions here, did you decide that you wanted to write books? Um, my first book was in 1992. I wrote a book with Davis Love III. And really? it was something, yeah, it was, that was my very first one, Through the Green, it was called. It was a week in the life of a PGA Tour player. Wow. I actually went to uh, tour, two tour stops with him. The second one was Riviera out in Los Angeles, and it was a 92 tournament. It, the, the time he was incredible. It was, <laughs> he got into playoff with Fred couples when couples was at his absolute Zenith at that time. Oh wow! And he lost in the playoff, but it was a great week to chronicle because he got all the way to the playoff before he lost. Anyways, I had always thought about writing a book. I just didn't know what I wanted to do it on, whether it was football or cause I was big into golf at that time. I was a golf writer. I had already had some connections because like I said, the U S open had already been played in 89 at Oak Hill when I wrote my first book. So I'd already, you know, gotten a feel for life on the tour or whatever. Um, it was always a challenge that I wanted to try to tackle. And once I wrote the first one, man, I kind of caught the bug. And the next one I did was the the volume one of Relentless that did great. And it just kind of took off from there. And I, I really enjoyed writing books. It's a great challenge. It's a different style of journalism. And it's more for, you're not making a lot of money, Patrick, I guarantee you. And I didn't put my kids through college with the, the royalties on my books, but it's a great accomplishment um, when you can finish a book and get it published. It, it's kind of an ego thing. You feel good about yourself because they're work. They, it's not like writing a 20 inch bill story. It sure. is work, a lot of work, research and, you know, transcribing and then actually putting the whole thing together. But it's a great challenge. And I think every writer should, should give it a try. I really do. Now, your most recent book, I believe it's the most recent one you've had published was 1968, Amid the Crucible right. of War, Revolt and Tragedy, Sports Helped Soothe America's Psyche. What was the inspiration for that? Yeah, I'm a history buff. I love history, especially sports history. And 1968, obviously, was you know maybe the, the, the most transformative year in the country's history outside mm-hmm. of the Civil War. And I just always loved history, and I wanted to do research just to learn more about that year. And I thought this would be a fun way to do it. And rather than just do your standard book about 1968, I've sort of created a little bit of a of a niche for myself. In I've written a few books like this. They're called historical novels, where you take real life events but you inject fictional characters into the story. I did it with my Yankees book, A Lifetime of Yankee Octobers. Um, I did it with um, what was the other book I did? I'm now I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now. But that was the idea behind 1968. I created a fictional family. And I dropped them into everything that happened. Well, not everything, but most everything that happened in 1968. So I obviously created a character because it is a sports book. Every other chapter is a culture um, news chapter, but every other chapter then is a sports chapter. So I had a fictional sports columnist who would have worked for the quasi Sports Illustrated, right, at the time. Mm -hmm. Covered all the main sporting events. But then I had, like, his son was in Vietnam. So there were a few chapters about you know, battles that actually happened and I just dropped the sun into the scenario and created the whole fictional scene with him involved. I had the daughter at Columbia during the riots 
And then I sent her out to the West Coast for the summer to be part of the hippie culture out there. Wow. I had the wife as a political zealot. So she was in Chicago for the convention that went crazy in, in 68. So it was just a fun story as I'm, as I'm telling the tale of 1968 from January to December, I had the fictional family basically guiding you through the whole year. It, it was just fascinating fun for me to do it. And really, really proud of that book. Yeah, that's wild. A few of yeah, your more. I think it's a great read. I hope people, I'm going I, to I wish now people would get it, but it's a, it's a really, it's in paperback and it's in, you know, ebook form. I, I wish more people would. I just tweeted it out today. In fact, Hey, the book is out there. It's 50 years ago, the year, you know, it's kind of the anniversary of the year is right now. All right. these events that are, you know, we just talked about RFK, uh, his assassination earlier this month. So these things are happening and they're all on their 50th anniversary. So now's the time to get the book. A few of your more notable books also include the ultimate season, which is about the 1978 Yankees and Red Sox, which that's by the, the way, one. that's my first sports memory ever that Bucky Dent game, just for the record. I know. Hundred, you also wrote 100 Things Sabres Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die and Game of My Life, Memorable Stories About the Buffalo Bills or about Buffalo Bills football. I got to ask you this. I'm sure all your books are like children to you. And, you know, it kind of feels like inappropriate to ask you if you like one of your children more than the others. But <laughs> whatever, I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you have a couple of favorite children? Yeah, I do. Um, the, I, I would say that my three favorite books were the three that I created the historical novel scenario. The other one was, you just mentioned it, Ultimate Season. That book, I took that pennant raise. I did a day-by-day, basically a daily blog, right, of, mm -hmm. of the entire season. And I had three fictional characters that told the story. I had a, a, a national base, baseball writer. I had a, a South Boston bartender from the Red Sox side. And I had a Yankee Stadium uh, female, a young college student, vendor at Yankee Stadium who was a big Yankee fan. So they take you through the whole season of 1978. It's the same thing. So those three books, that one, 1968, and A Lifetime of Yankee Octobers, I created, again, a fictional character who had been a part, at that time, it was 27 um, World Championship because the book came out in 2003. So they hadn't won since 2000, which was the 27th, I think, right? 20, yeah, 27th. They're on 28 now. Right. So I had this fictional character, Pat, who had witnessed every one of the World Series championship years, first as a young boy, as a bat boy in 1923, um, living right across the street from newly built Yankee Stadium, right up to he's a sports writer for you know several decades. And then at the end, he becomes a personal confidant to Joe Torre. So that whole last era, he's like Joe Torre's right hand guy, you know, hmm. so once again, just creating fiction in in the midst of you know real life events and you know i'm a huge yankee fan i'm sure you see that on twitter every night so to recap all 27 years that they won the world series was was cool but again the twist was that if it, i even had a guy a, a tv guy here in rochester who called me up after the book was published and he wanted to know if he could get an interview with the character's name was Joe Kimmel. It was actually my two grandfathers. I put their names together to, for the character and he wanted to know if he could score an interview with Joe Kimmerly. <laughs> I had to tell him, well, didn't you read the first page where it said, this is a work of fiction, but all events are real. The character doesn't exist. And he was like, he flabbergasted. He couldn't believe that this guy didn't exist. So I guess I fooled him. I must have done a pretty good job uh, with that character, but those are my three favorite books to write for, for sure. I got to be honest with you until talking to you just now, 
I had no idea that the, some of these books involved some fiction. That makes me want to check it out even more. And I'll tell you what, yeah. I'm definitely going to put a link in the show notes to all your books on Amazon. There's a link there with all the books and all that stuff. So I'll make sure that's in the show notes. Let me ask you this, because you mentioned golf too. What, what got you interested in golf and what, what made you fall in love with the sport? I mean, you have to love playing to be a single digit guy at any point of your life. Yeah, I actually came to golf late. I didn't play as a kid. I mean, I was just a regular, you know, suburban kid. We didn't have a lot of money to join a country club. I played a little bit in high school, but, you know, maybe like three times a summer. Actually, where I started playing golf was when I went to Corning. I went to Corning and we were an evening paper, which believe it or not, there was an evening paper at one point in this country. And I had my days free. So I had nothing better. I didn't have, you know, many friends down there, just the people I worked with. So one of the guys who worked there was a golfer and he would go, well, let's go play golf. So I would go play golf with him. And I was you know, not very good at the start, but I just started playing a lot of golf when I was in Corning because I had nothing better to do with my days. And then it kind of grew from there. And then I, you know, I actually got, pretty decent pretty quickly and once you start getting good at something right you want to do it more so i moved to rochester which is a golf capital i mean it's just a golf crazed town and there's great places to play everywhere in the city in the suburbs here and i ended up joining a club and once you do that and you're spending the money you're gonna play and i played and played and played and you know i would probably in my heyday i would play I'd probably post 50 or 55 scores a year, 18 holes, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just grew to love it through there and uh, have kept it up. Now I've, I'm kind of weaning off golf now. I'm, you know, I'm 55. I don't play as well as I used to. And I knew I'm so damn competitive. Like I'm only out there to beat the golf course. I don't care who I'm playing with or what you're doing. Sure. I'm just trying to beat the course and shoot my best score. And I knew that once, you know, I would break 80, you know, probably half the time. And I play in a, a tough course too. So it's, it's a challenge to break 80, but I would do it about half the time. But I knew once I stopped being able to do it on a regular basis, which is where I'm at now. I mean, it's tough for me to break 82 or 83 these days. I, I knew I would start losing interest just because, you know, I'm competitive and I don't want to be bad at something. So I haven't played nearly as much as I used to, but I still still belong to the club over here. And I played this morning and shot 82, so it wasn't terrible. Wasn't as good as I wanted, but, you know, I didn't want to slip my wrist after either. So that that was good, I guess. <laughs> Let me sneak two quick golf questions in here. Number one, you think Tiger's ever going to win another major or is he done? And two, what were your thoughts on Phil Mickelson with what happened at the U.S. Open when, you know, he hit the ball before it came to rest? Is that overblown <laughs> or did that really bother you? Uh, it, it really didn't bother me. It was overblown, of course, because it was Phil. I mean, if Tiger had done it, it would have been even more overblown. Mm-hmm. Um, look, it was a stupid thing to do, and I, I didn't appreciate him lying about it the day of the event. He came clean a few days later that he, you know, frustration overcame, and it wasn't about you know knowing the rules and figuring the two strokes weren't going to matter. That was BS. We knew that, and mm-hmm. he said it. So you know, he should have just come clean that day. Because we've all been frustrated. Even those guys are frustrated more than probably us because they expect perfection every day. So I get where he was coming from. I've been pissed off on the golf course, obviously. You know, they've, there's stories of me dropping F-bombs in the morning over here that are legendary because I get aggravated. So I get it, but he shouldn't have done it. I mean, that was just, you know, for a professional golfer in a major championship, that was a bad look. And especially from Phil, who should know better. So it didn't, you know, bother me. and caused me to you know write a column about it but it was a dumb thing and I'm, i wish he just acknowledged it right away as for tiger i've said i said for a long time that when he came back he would be good enough to win a major but i'm telling you i i just don't 
I don't know if he can win a major. I, I think he will win tour events, especially maybe next year. I think this year has all been about making sure he's healthy and, and making sure he can do the things, you know, at least to a degree that he used to do and getting his confidence back. And he has played some good tournaments, but I, I just don't know that he has it. He has what it takes at this point in his career to pull a Nicholas and win at 46 years old when that time comes. I just don't, I don't think it's going to happen, but I think he'll win tour events. I don't think he's done winning yet. You're a pretty active guy on Twitter, especially during the summertime where you kind of transition from Bill's reporter to major league baseball fan. You know, you're regularly, you know, either praising them or bitching when the Yankees and the Cubs. I'm usually bitching. Usually bitching. Yes, you are. When the Yankees or Cubs <laughs> aren't playing well. It's kind of funny because this guy's on his true sale. This is the truth here. Sometimes if I'm doing stuff and I'm not watching, the, I don't care about the Cubs. I know you do. I, I'm a Yankees guy and I'm not right. watching the game and I have no idea what's going on. I swear to God, this is the truth. Sometimes I'll go on Twitter and if I don't see your name on there, chances are the Yankees are playing pretty well. <laughs> I see four True. or five tweets. That means that somebody's not pitching well, Stan is not hitting well, or something. But here's my question, though. I'm pretty sure that, you know, your fandom for the Yankees came as a kid, you know, growing up in the state of New York and everything. But it did. It did. About the Cubs. How did you become a Cubs fan? What's that all about? You know, I came out of the Cubs in 1984, which was the, the great year when they, they should have won the National League. They blew it to the Padres. Yeah, I remember that. And, right. They blew it. Um, I, I really liked Ryan Sandberg as a player. Um, I was a second baseman, you know, in, in high school and then in softball, right? It's, I played second base or shortstop. I wore 23 because of Mattingly and Sandberg. I just really liked Ryan Sandberg. And I ended up falling in love with that particular team. You know, the Yankees were, were decent in the mid-80s, you know, with Mattingly and Ricky Henderson. They, you know, no World Series, obviously. But, you know, I was a little bit down on the Yankees and I was looking for something different and fresh. And that Cubs team was just so much fun. So I kind of latched onto them and then I followed them, you know, on the periphery for a few years. And then they just went into, you know, being the Cubs, right. For the, yeah. for the next three decades. Right. I mean, there was only, there was only four or five years that were even worth, you know, you know, following them for, and then, you know, when Twitter comes along, it's a little, you know, it, it gives you more of a platform. People didn't really know I was a Cubs fan. I wasn't barking about it. You know, there was no Twitter back then. Now that there's Twitter, people are finding out that I am a Cubs fan. But yes, there's no doubt that this recent run has rejuvenated, you know, Cubs fandom, not only for me, but for, you know, people all over the country. They've been a fun team since 2015. Now, they haven't been too much fun this year. They've been friggin' aggravating is what they've been this year. And I consider them the most overrated team in baseball. But yeah, that's where the Cubs fandom comes from. I've got, hey, and you know, you got to remember, Patrick, back in the day, you're old enough to know. Back in the day, there were two leagues, man. <laughs> there yeah. was the American League and the National League, yep. and they never played each other until the World Series. So there was no reason why you couldn't like a team in each league. Now, of course, it's, you know, everything is, you know, meshed together. And when the Yankees play the Cubs, that kind of sucks. I'm, I'm a Yankees fan first. So I, they're 1A, the Cubs are 1B. It's always going to be that way. But, you know, I don't exactly like when they play each other. And when they do, I hope it's a two out of three. You know, like the, the Yankees swept the Cubs last year. I didn't really like that too much. I was kind of rooting for the Cubs that last game of that series, but um, you know that I—that's just the way it was back then. You had two leagues, entirely different situations. Why not have a team in each league? So that was my National League team. I got one more question for you, and then we're going to end with our little mini lightning round. And I'm glad I have you on because you're one of the few people who I think could accurately answer this question. Because guys like Jay Skursky and Matt, you know, they've only been on the beat for a short amount of time. 
whereas you covered the team. So here's my question. We talked earlier about, you know, you were covering the Bills when they were a Super Bowl team early in your career. Can you imagine what it would have been like had Twitter been around when that team was, you know, playing, knowing you know these guys, you were in the locker room, you covered them. What would a Twitter have been like for Buffalo Bills, like Tally and and Bruce and Jim and, and Thurman and stuff like that? God, oh my, I, it's crazy just thinking about it. Had Twitter been oh. around like it is now? It would have been utter chaos because these guys would have had no filter. They, ne- they never had a filter back then to begin with. Um, you know, today, these athletes, they don't tell you anything. It really is. You get homogenized quotes. It's really frustrating. They've all been trained to say nothing. Back then, they, they weren't trained. They said whatever they wanted to say generally. And if they had been on Twitter, it would have been utter chaos. It would have been fun, man. What, what, a, what a circus that would have been. I would have loved it. Oh, my God. That, what do you see it today? With, uh, you know, Tally's on Twitter a little bit. And sure. He's on, and Thurman's on Twitter. They have fun with it now. You know the stakes are less for them because they're retired now. But they would have been just freak shows on Twitter. It would have been so much fun. Then again, though, it would have also created more work for us too, because we would have been tracking down stuff night and day with these guys. Oh, you see, based Thur- on their Twitter. Can you imagine Thurman if it's a game where he doesn't get enough touches and the Bills oh, lose because Jim threw exactly. three interceptions and Thurman only had twelve carries? Can you imagine him on Twitter on Sunday night or Monday I can morning? only imagine I can only imagine the tweets that would have come out of Kelly's basement after all those parties because <laughs> those guys were all drunk. <laughs> Holy smokes, it would have been unbelievable. Yeah. Okay, so I like to end every single interview with the same thing. I do a little mini lightning round. Just going to ask you a handful of random human interest questions. Not too much thinking required. Whatever comes into your mind, just pop it off. All right, cool? Sure. All right. Favorite non-sports related activity to do, and that includes golf. You can't say golf. (laughs) I can't say golf. No. Uh, Actually, my favorite activities are reading books. I love reading books. I like writing books, but I like reading books. And I, I, I'll admit it. I love Netflix, man. Who doesn't? Netflix can eat up a lot of my time. So yeah, let me I tell enjoy. you, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I just had to drag myself away. I'm binge watching The Office right now on Netflix, and I had to drag myself away from it to come do this interview. So I, I hear you. I'm addicted to Netflix, big time. <laughs> yeah. What favorite city to visit? Uh, favorite city to visit. I love Chicago. Um, I have a cousin who lives there, so it's great because I can go go to Wrigley Field and have a place to stay. But I just, I love Chicago. It's a cool city. I love, you know, I love New York too. There's nothing, there's nothing like New York city, but to visit a place, I I really enjoy going to Chicago. Obviously the South is fun and the West LA was great, but yeah, if I had to pick one place, Chicago. You have a lot of good friends in the media, I'm sure, but do you have one or two that you consider your closest friends? Um, yeah. I mean, the guys I work with the paper here and Leo Ross, they're my colleagues for 30 some years. Um, Vic Carucci. Vic and I go back to when, like I said, when I was a stringer at AP, I started in 1982 and Vic had just come to the Buffalo News. I think it might've even been 1982 was his first year at, at where he came from. Uh, I think he came from Utica. No, he came from Philly. I'm sorry. He worked out in North Jersey and Philly. So we've been friends for, you know, we're going back 35 years now. So yeah, those are probably my two closest. Mark gone is a good friend. Uh, we went to college together at Buff State. We worked for the Buff State paper together and it turns out his stepson is dating and will probably marry my niece (laughs) so it's kind of a weird little little buffalo connection there too so yeah mark's a good friend of mine too but all you're right though all those guys we get along great there's no animosity in our media room we all get along which is nice you know back in the day 
there would always be little petty stuff going on because we were you know more rivals back then. But yeah, we got a good group of guys. Rodak's a good dude. Fairburn, you know, Capaccio, Biscalia, they're all good guys. I, I enjoy all those guys. What's your favorite sports movie ever? My favorite sports movie is probably Bull Durham. I, I just, I love it. I think it's hysterical. I can, if that comes on, I'm watching it every single time it's on. Um, I, I lean towards baseball. Uh, that's my favorite sport. I cover football. It's my, it's my job, but baseball was my passion. If I could ever change careers, it would be <laughs> to cover, you know, a baseball team, a major league baseball team. So I love baseball. I love baseball movies, but Bull Durham just, it just cracks me up. If you had never gotten involved in journalism in any type of capacity, for whatever reason, you couldn't do it, you didn't like it, you weren't good at it, whatever. What do you think you may have ended up doing with your life? Jeez. I told you, Patrick, I'm since sixth grade. Yeah. So it's kind of a tough, it's kind of a tough thought to form because I never had anything else on my mind. I went from, you know, playing kickball on the street to typing those stories on my computer, on my, uh, <laughs> on my typewriter. So I didn't have much time to think about it. I don't know. I, maybe I would have been in, uh, maybe in PR or something. I really, I don't know. I don't have, I don't have a good answer for that one. Okay. Fair enough. Second, last question here. If Twitter were to send you a note and said, Hey, Sal, you're only allowed to follow one person on Twitter and one person only, who would it be and why? Um, I gave that some thought because we were talking about Adam Schefter earlier. <laughs> you know, it would probably be Schefter. And this is why I'm, I use Twitter mostly for work and to rant about baseball, right? I mean, we, we all find, a lot of us find our news on Twitter. It's a great resource for that. And let's face it, you know, I, I, I may not like the way the system is rigged, but if you're not following Schefter, you're, you're not up to speed on a lot of stuff. So if I had one person, and like I said, I use Twitter mainly for work. If there's one person I needed to follow, it would be Adam because he gets all the scoops and I would be informed that way. So I know it may sound weird picking someone like him, but if I only had one and given what I use Twitter for mostly, he'd be the guy I'd follow. Last question here. I'm sure you've heard this type of question before. You could have three dinner guests from any era, dead or alive. Who you got? For sure, RFK. I, I would love to have had dinner with Robert F. Kennedy. Um, just, to, just to learn if he was unfiltered, if he was still alive, and unfiltered and can tell me what was happening during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, it's just that stuff just fascinates me. Um, all the stuff surrounding his brother's death and all the wars with LBJ and, you know, um, Hoover, the FBI director, I, he would just be fat. And then just, you know, who he became, you know, when he jumped into the presidential race in 68, just all that he stood for. I'm not, I'm not a Democrat. I consider myself actually a Republican not a crazy Republican, but, um, he just fascinates me. He always has always will. So him for sure. Uh, Mickey Mantle would probably be my second choice Nice, just because he's the Mick. I know that's kind of a cliche answer, but I, I would just love to have Mickey Mantle for the next like 24 hours, recount all the stories with him and Martin and, oh, and Whitey God. Ford and yeah. all the partying and just what it was like to be a Yankee in the fifties and six. I think that would just be, hysterical to, to sit down and listen to. And then if I had to pick a third, actually, you know, a guy who always fascinates me is Mark Cuban. I, I think Mark Cuban is, is just a, a weird, wild, crazy, successful dude. And I would love to kind of hear some of his thoughts, not only on sports, but on business. And he's, you know, you can't argue. He's just an incredible businessman. I watched that show, that shark show. 
and mm-hmm. he cracks me up on that. I think he'd be a fun a fun guy to have dinner with, and I think I learn a lot listening to him. So yeah, those would be my th- those would be three of many, but I'll, I'll go with those three. Good stuff. All right, Sal, I've admired your work for a really long time. Not to make you sound old, but. You know, I, I, well, am, I am. I am old. Oh, I've admired your stuff for a long time. I'm going to put show links, or I'm going to put links to everything in the show notes. All your books, you know, the Rochester Democratic Chronicle, all that stuff. It was an honor having you on today. We went more than an hour. I really appreciate your time. It was a big thrill for me to have you on the show. Hey, Pat, thanks for having me. I'll do it anytime you need me. All right, that'll wrap up this latest episode. Big thank you again to Sal Mariano for his time. That was fun, man. That was fun. I love doing those long-form interviews, and hopefully that puts to rest the nonsense notion a lot of Bills fans have that sells this bitter old man who never has anything nice to say. Couldn't be further from the truth. Couldn't be further from the truth. Seriously. Sal's a great dude. Great interview. Lots of stories in there. Some of my favorite guests or when I feel like I'm learning a lot by talking to them. And that certainly was the case today. I'll tell you, I talk to a lot of local Buffalo media on this show. And also, you know, my fair share of media that covers other teams as well as a couple national guys. The Buffalo media is pretty tight, man. Pretty tight. Good stuff. A lot of fun. Coming up on Monday's show, I have Jonathan Jones from Sports Illustrated. Going to talk about his career a career that started covering the Carolina Panthers and now working at Sports Illustrated. That'll be a fun talk. Tone Pucks will also be back for our Pat with Pucks segment. We'll be talking Buffalo Sabres as NHL free agency will be started, and I'm sure some other topics as well. If you haven't done so already, please, and I ask you every week, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. It's really quick. It's really easy. It's really free. You subscribe and the latest episodes automatically get sent to your phone or computer. You can listen to them, delete them after, whatever you want to do. That's cool with me. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Pamoran Tweets. Have yourself a nice, safe, happy, fun weekend. And I'll talk to you guys again on Monday. Peace.